Yeah, thank you for the reminder. We do have some uh, pictures over there that the young kids can uh, color that go along with the message today and then a, another sheet too for the little bit older children. So there's crayons and pencils over there that they can use uh, to do that. Thank you for the reminder. A few uh, interesting statistics about recycling. Americans throw away 2.5 million plastic bottles every hour. Americans throw away enough paper every year to build a 12-foot high wall from Seattle to New York every year. More than 28 billion glass bottles and jars end up in landfills every year. That's the equivalent, by the way, of filling up the Empire State Building with glass bottles every 10 days. And finally, in 2007, and it's increased dramatically since then, 40 million computers and cell phones were thrown away. A lot of people today are concerned about our environment, and that's a commendable concern. Last Friday, which was the day before the 71st anniversary of D-Day, was World Environment Day. The Apostle Paul, here in our passage this morning, Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, and then 29 through 32, is even more concerned and interested in the atmosphere of love and compassion shown in our churches through our words the way we talk to each other. He wants us really to recycle our vocabulary, especially in four key areas of church family life right here at Grace Fellowship. So we're going to talk about how we communicate with each other. To begin with, the Apostle Paul in verse 25 talks about truth instead of lies. Look at it with me. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It is a challenge to be honest people, a real challenge. But God wants us to fill our mouths with truth and to share truth with each other, truth that builds up or edifies. That's the key word today, edify. It means to build, to build up. Lies hurt and hinder us and others from growing spiritually. That's the first practical area of how we use our words. There are some common lies that we hear all around us frequently. For example, the check is in the mail. Or, I'll start my diet tomorrow. Or, give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. One size fits all. Heard that one? It's not true. Or we go to the dentist and we hear, open wide, this won't hurt a bit. (laughs) Yeah, right. Paul tells us and the Ephesians to not be satisfied with lies, not be satisfied with ungodly character. Rather, to simply stop deceiving each other and start speaking the truth. It's an interesting thing as I worked on this message that out of all the verses in the Bible, and there are many, about how we use our mouths to either bless or tear down, the most common adjective connected with the word speech or the word tongue or the word word is the word deceitful. Deceitful 
speech, deceitful tongues. It's the most common adjective because it's the most common thing we struggle with. Being honest. Sometimes we forget that truth is at the very core of who God is. It's His very character. And also He desires all men to know the truth and to speak truth. Here's the pattern for most of us. And I know because I've been there and I know you have too. We do something we shouldn't do and then we lie about it because we don't want anybody else to find out. And then we tell some more lies to cover those first lies. All along forgetting that God knows. Maybe no one else does, but God knows. Our lies cause unhappiness, suspicion, mistrust, suffering. The point is, no good can come from lying. There are many forms of falsehood. For example, look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let me talk about that little word a moment. Slander. It literally means whispering. And it gives us the picture of someone talking behind another person's back to a third person. Telling them something that may damage the character of that other person. To demonstrate how serious this gets... Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, lying, and slanders. Jesus Himself, who knows all of this, includes lying about others and slandering their name in the same context as adultery and murder. That's serious stuff. Gossip is a much more common thing than slander, but it's just as sinful. Gossip is creating a rumor, spreading around a rumor, a false impression about someone else with a purpose of intentionally misleading people to think the wrong things about that person and damaging their character. Another form of lying is half-truth. Like the person who calls in sick to work but then they take their tummy ache out for a round of golf or out on the boat to go fishing. Sometimes people lie to cover for someone else. Like the phone call that comes to the house for so-and-so. And they tell us, tell them I'm not here. And so we say, oh, sorry, they're not here when they're actually sitting right by the phone. So how do we make the switch from falsehoods that characterize the sinful man to truth that is the quality of the spiritual man? Well, first of all, we have to recognize the source of lies and of truth. The source of lies is right from the pit of hell. Satan himself is the father of lies, according to Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44. Truth, on the other hand, comes from God, who is Himself truth. Truth is personified in Jesus Christ. Some of you already know the verse. I'll quote it for you. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is truth in person. And so that means by application that we need to recognize how important truth is to God. 
we also must think through the fact that we have spoken some falsehoods and we need to confess that to the Lord because after all those falsehoods are already known by God listen to Hebrews 4.13 this is an amazing verse there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to him with whom we have to do he knows everything we can't hide from God We can't hide our thoughts or our words or our actions from God. We need to think through the consequences of lying, such as dishonoring God who is truth, such as affecting others in our home and family or in the family of God in the church, or affecting our testimony, our witness of Jesus Christ as an individual believer or as part of the body of Christ. To lie to each other in the body of Christ is against what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 25 again. He says, here's the reason why we should be truthful. For we are members of one another. We belong to the same body with Jesus Christ as the head of the body. So to lie to each other in the body means we're really lying to ourselves. But even more importantly, we're lying to the head of the body, Jesus Christ. So I'm convinced that every believer needs a biblical injection of truth serum. And daily doses of it can be found in the Bible. That's why it's so important, as Pastor Jeff shared, to keep reading the Bible every day through the summer. Whether or not you're in the Walk Through the Bible program, read every day in God's Word. It'll help you focus on truth. Because the Bible is full of truth from Genesis to Revelation. And I think you already know this, but I'll remind you that lying includes a whole lot more than just direct statements that are false. It also occurs when we exaggerate in order to get someone's attention. We tell that fish story, that whopper of a tale. It happens when we embellish stories to make ourselves look better or make someone else look worse. It happens when we make promises we know we can't keep. It happens when we betray a confidence. Someone has told us something in private and we've said to them, Oh, I won't tell anybody. (laughs) But then what do we often do in the Christian context? We share it with somebody else and say, We really need to pray about this. We do that, don't we? And also, it happens when we engage in flattery, trying to suck up to the other person. We need to consider how falsehoods hurt others. We need to think about the fact that we don't want to be lied to by people that are close to us. So the golden rule comes into effect, doesn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And while some people do intentionally deceive other people, I don't know of a single person who wants to be deceived. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Please lie to me. No. So truth instead of lies. A second practical area of our speech has to do with calmness in place of anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. We are now in uh, the NBA Finals. And I'm, 
I'm a sports fan, but I haven't watched any of it. But I read about uh, years ago during a Knicks-Bullets playoff game, one of the Bullets players came up from behind the great Walt Frazier and punched him in the face. Strangely, the referee called a foul on Walt. But Frazier didn't complain. His expression never even changed on camera. He simply kept calling for the ball and poured in seven straight shots to win the game for the Knicks. That's an amazing display of controlling anger. But Paul here is not talking about just trying to suppress anger. That's not what he's advocating here. And while I'm on that subject, by the way, let me explain that I am totally convinced that what makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world is that God doesn't just tell us to try to live moral lives. We're not left to ourselves to just do better. How many of you ever struggled with doing better? I have. But that's not what God has for us. We can have a righteous life in Jesus Christ. We can't be truly moral people all on our own because we're born as sinners. But by faith in Jesus Christ, through a life-changing transformation by the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary, we can be in control of our emotions. He will take away our sin and He'll give us the power as a living Savior to conquer anger. So we're talking here about the control of our emotions. There is a right kind of anger. That's why Paul starts out in verse 26 saying, Be angry. There are things we ought to be angry about. Jesus Himself was angry at sin. On one occasion, He was working a miracle, about to work a miracle of restoring the withered hand of a man in the synagogue. The Jewish leaders were upset. They thought, you can't heal on the Sabbath day. Come on. And here's what it says in Mark 3, verse 5 about Jesus. Looking around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of their heart, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man was healed. Jesus was angry that they had such a callous attitude toward a man who had struggled with this physical informity, deformity for years. And there are things we should be angry about too. Sin in ourselves, for sure. And the sin and degradation of our nation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was executed during the war for opposing the Nazis, said, and I quote, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And he's, tr- he, he's right. It should make us angry when we read in the news about child abuse or sexual abuse or crime sprees in Baltimore or the government trying to control freedom of religion or about a national disgrace called abortion. Paul actually uses two different words here. One is anger, the other is wrath. I point that out to simply say that wrath is a stronger more intense version of the word anger. It's like a slow-burning fuse. A determination to get back at someone, seething on the inside, waiting for the opportunity to lash out. 
How are we to get a handle on our anger? The Apostle Paul here gives us a reason for getting control of our anger. He says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The point being that if we don't deal with anger, we still convey the impression at least that we are under the grip of Satan. When we don't control our anger, we give the devil his greatest opportunity to attack us and the church. The greatest opportunity for controlling our thoughts and our actions and for harming the local church and its testimony. So Paul's challenge is don't leave it unsettled. Deal with it right away. Get it out in the open. Face it. And by the way, that's good advice for married couples. We all have our issues once in a while, don't we? As husbands and wives. The best advice I can give you from God's own word is get it settled before you go to bed. And then go to bed happy in the Lord and in love with each other. One characteristic of love, Christ's kind of love on display in a marriage or in a church family, is described for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. And it's the point that love is not easily provoked. Provoked. So we work at not letting things bother us. It's not easy, but that's our calling, our job. To not let anger stir us up. To not lash out with words. To not let that problem between us simmer on the back burner of the stove of self-protection. If our focus when we've been hurt is my rights, then we can be sure that we've been wrong. Because that shouldn't be our focus. We need to consciously remove ourselves from the trap of -of out-of-control anger. And find instead freedom and control. The control specifically of the Holy Spirit. That control enables us to show peace and patience and long-suffering. But the problem is we don't like the suffering part, do we? But learning to control our anger will take us from those outbursts of rage to outpourings of blessing and favor and affection and concern even for those who have stirred up those negative emotions in us which brings us to a third practical area building up rather than tearing down look at verse 29 let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. While I was working on this message, I came across a series of jokes on the internet called, And That's When the Fight Started. So I have one about husbands and one about wives for you. One woman says, My husband was standing in front of the mirror the other morning, lamenting his big belly, his wrinkles, his small muscles, and his receding hairline. He said, hey, honey, I need some affirmation. So I said, well, at least your eyesight's perfect. And that's when the fight started. And then for the ladies, one husband says, my wife was hinting about what she wanted for an upcoming anniversary. She said, I want something shiny that goes from zero to 150 in three seconds. I said, okay, great, I'll buy you a scale. (laughs) 
And that's when the fight started. I'm going to skip the rest of those jokes. And you may have noticed that we skipped over verse 28, right? Let him who stole steal no more. I skipped over it simply because it's in the context of using our hands to take what doesn't belong to us. But the subject of stealing does come up in the context of our words. We can use our words to steal joy from someone. We can use our words to take away a person's self-confidence or their healthy attitudes about themselves. Instead, God wants us to give and give and give back and keep giving back. Words that build instead of tearing down. I want you to notice in the text an interesting word. It's translated in some versions as unwholesome, in other versions as corrupt. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. It comes from a Greek word that means ugly, contaminated, unpleasant, and literally rotten. I need a volunteer this morning for a little project. Anybody want to volunteer? Okay, come on up. I want you to take a real good whiff of this. Okay. I got some uh, meat scraps from Stokes on Thursday morning. And I told them what I was going to do with it. And they said, well, just leave it out for a while and it'll go bad. And it did. Yeah. Here's a little reward for being a volunteer. Yeah, I can smell it right here. I've got it sitting inside the pulpit. If I left it out a few more days, you probably wouldn't want to come in the building. But words can have that feel and that smell, can't they? Words can be so rotten and so harmful when they take such forms as name-calling, labeling, ridicule, threats, the determination to win an argument, profanity, dirty jokes, and that's just the short list. As I was working on this message, my mind went to the sad fact that so many people today, including some who call themselves Christians, I call them careless Christians, use language that 40 or 50 years ago would have been considered scandalous. We often refer to this kind of talking as being a potty mouth. Led by the Holy Spirit, Paul is so concerned about our talk, about our words, about the way that we communicate with each other, that he says in verse 31, notice it with me, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And then if you'll flip one page over in your Bibles, look at chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named, that's our words, named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. That coarse jesting there, by the way, means uh, telling dirty jokes, worldly jokes, just to get a laugh. Paul says those are not fitting, but rather we should be giving thanks. Think about the fact that out of all of God's creation, humankind are the only ones who can communicate with words. Now before you say, well, wait a minute, what about a parrot? (laughs) They can't think of what to say. They are parroting 
mimicking what we're saying. We are the only creatures in God's arsenal of creation who can actually think what we want to say and then speak it and communicate it. That's a privilege. But it's also sometimes a problem. It's a special thing that we can speak from out of the heart. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But that's just the problem, isn't it? But sometimes, because we're speaking out of the heart, some wrong things come out. In that same chapter, Matthew 12, verse 37, Jesus adds, By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Words are powerful. The Apostle James reminds us of the power of words, the power of the tongue. He says this in James 3, verse 6, The tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire from hell. It not only sets on fire the course of our lives, it sets on fire the course of other people's lives. The outcome of their lives is affected by our speech, by our rotten words. Sometimes we refer to that kind of talking too as trash talking. And that's exactly what ought to be done with it. It should be thrown in the garbage or more specifically to our message today, the recycle bin. And instead there ought to be words that build up. Think about this. We don't know people like God knows people. We don't know what is going to help them or hurt them unless we're directed by the Holy Spirit to say helpful things to the very ones God created for His own pleasure. On his very first job interview, this man was told that he was, quote, lacking in imagination and also that he, quote, had no original ideas. Well, this man left a little down, but he didn't let that get him down totally and he started his own business and many of us today especially with children are sure glad that Walt Disney didn't give up on those negative comments (laughs) imagine telling Walt Disney he has no imagination once again there's more here than a command there's also a reason given Paul wants us to consider using our tongues and our words for the purpose of giving grace to those who listen. The word grace is the same word as the word gift in the Bible. And the point is, God has given us a wonderful gift of being able to use words to build up someone else, to speak encouraging words, to share honest praise, to give rightful admiration and appreciation and show thankfulness. Loving words that may sometimes include having to give correction to an erring brother or sister. It includes praying with and for each other. It includes sharing Scripture with each other, something that God has taught us from His Word. Listen to what Isaiah 50 verse 4 says about the lifestyle of Jesus. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Lord God has given me, speaking of Jesus, the tongue of the disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. 
Isn't that a great way to think about using our words, our conversations in a positive way to sustain the weary one? So once more, the challenge is to put off or throw in the recycle bin those unwholesome words, those rotten words, the ones that hurt, and instead to speak grace. Grace to those who are still lost sinners. Grace to those who are saved saints who need His help like you and I do to be gracious toward each other. So let's wrap up with a fourth practical area for our words. Forgiveness replacing bitterness. Look at verse 31. We read it earlier. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. One day two men were walking through the countryside. They were going to go help bring the crops in in another village. As they walked along, they spied an old woman sitting by the edge of the river. She was upset because there was no bridge anymore, and she couldn't get across on her own. The first man kindly offered, well, we'll carry you across. And she said, oh, thank you, thank you, accepting their help. So the two men locked arms, and she sat on their arms, and they carried her across the river. And they got to the other side, they sat her down, and off she went on her way. After the two men had walked another mile or so, One of the men said, Look at my clothes. They're filthy from carrying that woman across the river. And my back still hurts from lifting her. I can feel it getting stiff. The first man just smiled and nodded. A few more miles up the road, the second man griped again. My back is hurting so badly. And it's all because we had to carry that stupid woman across the river. I can't go any farther because of the pain. The first man looked at his partner, now lying down on the ground and moaning, and said, Have you wondered why I'm not complaining? Your back hurts because you're still carrying the woman. I put her down five miles ago. And bitterness is just like that. It's carrying the weight of that pain that maybe someone else caused us, no doubt. But we keep carrying it, and it weighs us down and down and down. And we complain. But Paul's talking here about not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. What grieves him? Sin. The Holy Spirit of God must care about sin in our lives if it grieves him. I believe that any sin in the life of a believer grieves the Holy Spirit, including how I use my tongue and my words to hurt other people. But the real issue isn't some struggle we may have with sin. What grieves him most is when we fail to live up to our calling as God's beloved children, as forgiven ones. A marvelous calling in our lives is to recognize that we are God's children and that He's given us the ability to be encouragers ourselves. When I do my own thing and say whatever I want to say because I think I have the right to and without regard for my family then I demonstrate that being part of the family of God isn't that important to me and that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's just like in the human family. Some of us have been through this. A parent is grieved when their child ignores family responsibilities and rules and heads out on a path that the parent knows is going to be destructive 
Godly parents in that situation are less concerned about what uh, people might think of their home or family. And they're far more concerned for the welfare of their child. The grief is real. The pain is at times almost unbearable because the parent wants the best for that child, but that child seems to be settling for the worst, not the best. I think the same thing happens with the Holy Spirit and the child of God. He knows what's best for us and for every member of the family, and He is pained beyond words when we say, I'm going to go my way. I'm going to do my thing. Look at what grieves the Holy Spirit according to our text. Bitterness, wrath, anger. We talked about those words before. Clamor, that's another word for brawling or fighting. That's when uh, our anger gets out of control and our short fuse is now down to nothing and the bomb goes off. And someone's going to get hurt. And then finally, slander. Abusive speech that intends to ruin the reputation of a brother or sister in the Lord. Someone has appropriately noted, you never look good trying to make someone else look bad. There's a lot of truth to that statement. So Paul says, put away all those negative words, those harmful thoughts. By the way, we are talking too about thoughts. I know what I'm talking about because I've done it. I get thoughts in my head about someone, maybe someone who's hurt me, and I keep ruminating on those thoughts. I keep my mouth shut most of the time. I don't say what is in there, but God knows what's in there, right? He knows our thoughts. And even though we're not saying it with our tongues and our mouths and our vocal cords... Our mind is letting loose on this other person. So Paul says, put away all of that. Along with, he says, all malice. Malice has to do with making specific plans for how I'm going to harm that other person. But what do we do that gives him joy, the Holy Spirit, instead of grief? Well, the opposite of verse 31 is verse 32. And there we're told, kindness shown to each other brings him joy. Compassion brings him joy. A tender heart brings him joy. And especially forgiveness will bring a smile to the Spirit of God. Why should we be forgiving? Look at verse 32. It tells us, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I should be forgiving because God forgave me of a whole lot more. Enough said. Language experts tell us that the average American has a 10,000 word vocabulary these days and that we use about 5,000 of those words in everyday conversation. I find it interesting, intriguing, that in the Word of God, the Bible, there are just over 5,000 verses from God through the writers of the Old and New Testaments that talk to us about how we use our words, about our ability to affect others, about our ability to praise Him, about recycling our vocabulary in order to please Him and to benefit others. So as we wrap up this message, 
I thought it would be good to modify an old phrase that's been around for a while, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I want to ask instead, what would Jesus say? WWJS. I submit to you that Jesus would say, in fact, more specifically, has already said these things about the four practical areas we've looked at this morning. First of all, He would say, speak truth instead of lies because I am the truth. I quoted it earlier, but I'd love to have you quote it with me if you know it. John 14, 6. Say it with me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the truth. Secondly, he would say, show calmness in place of anger, since I am your example, Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 20. If when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Now here's the example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who does righteously. What a great example. We can follow some of that example. Thirdly, he would say, build up each other rather than tearing each other down because you're either strengthening or weakening my body over which I am the head. And finally, Forgive instead of being bitter because I forgave you of everything and I'm not bitter against you and I won't ever hold that against you. Ever. Can I hear an amen for that? He won't ever hold those sins against us. Wow. We're going to close the service this morning with a wonderful old hymn. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. We have words of life we can give other people. In the body of Christ and out there in the community, those who need Him, they need these words of life. Would you stand and sing it with me this morning as we close? Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty Teach me faith and duty Beautiful words, wonderful words Wonderful words of life Wonderful words, wonderful words.
words of life sweetly echo the gospel call wonderful words of life offer pardon and peace to all wonderful of life Jesus only Savior sanctify forever beautiful words wonderful words wonderful words of life beautiful words wonderful words wonderful words of life would you pray with me Father in heaven thank you for those words of life words of life and beauty Thank you that we can share those words with others once we've experienced them ourselves by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's someone here today who's had bitter feelings toward another person, may they seek your guidance about how to deal with that situation in love. If we've said something to someone else in this congregation that has hurt them, and you've brought conviction this morning, Lord, help us to go to them and make it right. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the Holy Spirit who teaches us all these things and brings it all to our remembrance. May we be so careful about how we use our words so that we can build up instead of tearing down. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.